Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloading Podcast. This week I'm talking to Rob Lowe of Sports Data Expert. Rob is a pioneer in the field of sports statistics and they use him performance analysis. Having been a director of Optus Sports and worked with numerous rugby league, rugby union and soccer clubs and organisations in Britain and around the world. I wanted to get Rob in to talk to him about the history of data analysis in sport, how it's affected the way sport is played and how it might be used in the future. So, welcome to the show, Rob. So, to start off with, how did you get involved in performance analysis? Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Tony. It all really started for me in 1996. Um, myself and a couple of colleagues at university got together uh, and set up a company to collect, which was at the moment, uh, at the time, just statistics on rugby league. Um, one of my colleagues was doing it as a final year project in his sports science course and I was doing a little bit of pen and paper stats for Hull KR at the time um, and anyway somehow or other we managed to get the idea in front of Neville Smith at Sky who liked it which provided us with a kind of an income to turn it into a real business and from there we kind of gradually built it up built up the client base to include clubs and newspapers um, and at that time, the kind of just starting up internet kind of um, businesses that were into sport. Uh, and after about five years, we um, sold the business to Sky, who had built up a portfolio of similar businesses, including Opta, which was doing a very similar thing in football. So from there, I managed the rugby uh, arm of Opta. After a couple of years, Sky... Um, after the dot-com bubble had burst, Sky decided to sell it on to some new investors. And uh, we lived quite happily ever after, really, um, advancing the technology and building up uh, a portfolio of more or less every um, rugby club in Britain, most of the clubs in France and quite a lot of the union um, governing bodies and clubs outside of of. Uh, Europe as well so um, and then about four years ago I decided to become a freelance in the industry uh, so now I advise um, different sporting organisations in um, all manner of sports around their data strategy. So when you first started off what type of stats were you looking at because again going back to the early 90s um, it was a very very new industry and a very new way of thinking of things. So do, what did you start looking at and did that develop into more sort of, you know, very fine grain, nuanced stats or what? Yeah, so that's a, a really good way of looking at it. So to start with, well, before before we kind of got into it, the pen and paper way of doing it would allow you to count certain things. So we could do a tackle count. We could count the sets of six. You might be able to do a little bit on missed tackles and perhaps line breaks or something. But it was very hard because of the limitation of the human being and the method that you were using to to go into great depth. So the first thing by recording it by a computer on a kind of an interface straight directly in as you, as you saw it meant you could count a lot more categories. So we could then do carries and we could do the meters and we could do the offloads. So you'd, perhaps built up maybe 20 categories at the start that would be a massive upgrade on what people had before. But over a period of 
the next decade, as you say, the kind of the granular detail was built up. So was was the tackle from marker? Was it a cover tackle? Was it a dominant tackle? Was it a passive tackle? And um, you'd you'd end up with kind of maybe twenty subcategories of tackles and kicks and carries that would be able to give a lot more detail about the the players and also um, the styles of teams and the strengths and weaknesses of the teams. So, and a lot of that came kind of inward. So a lot of it was requests from the customers who would want to look at particular things, but some of it would be our observations as if we were watching 12 hours of rugby every week, you kind of develop those own, those ideas of your own to, of things to look at. I think we first met probably about 1999 when you were based at the RFL headquarters and I was trying to rescue the RFL's archives. And I think one of the things that struck me when you were explaining what you're doing is that I wondered how much was of the initial ideas were taken from American football because obviously, well, American sport in general is much more stats-oriented than most British sports with the possible exception of cricket. And a lot of the early rugby league stats seem to be very similar to the the sort of regular stats we used to see on a Sunday afternoon watching watching the NFL on Channel Four is that was that the case or did you come to it independently of that? Yeah, I think I think there, there were a lot of things that were clearly parallels. Um, sort of kick returning, for example, um, is a, uh, an obvious one. Uh, tackling those kind of things, uh, but then I think we probably went a little bit past American football in the level of detail. At that time, where they they kind of they had a set formula that was almost governed by the game itself, which, which was a limitation. Whereas um, we were a lot freer to to think up new ideas of our own. In more recent times, American football has caught right up again, and they um, because of, of technology getting better, they're now uh, a lot more able to collect stats on the linemen and and things like that, which were were quite difficult when it was just a human watching the game with a clipboard. As you said earlier on, you started off in rugby league, then you moved to rugby union. Did you find differences there in the way that the analysis was used or the way that people saw analysis? Because obviously the two games, are classic, you know, the classic quote is that they're you know, similar on the field, but completely different cultures off it. How did you find working in rugby union after starting off in rugby league? Yeah, so... Um... Really, we, we kind of really started doing rugby union in great detail after the Lions tour of 2001. That was when we, we, we really, we'd done a little bit before that, but that's when it kind of took off for us. And that kind of coincided with really significant improvements in technology, which meant firstly, we could digitise the video onto a hard disk, whereas before all our... Um, video referencing was done on VHS and secondly not long after that we were able to uh, quite a long time in advance of Netflix actually we were able to distribute the videos to the clubs over the internet so we would set the connection up and overnight it would send three or four matches down the line and they would they would get up the next day with the video on their server and that for rugby union was quite a big game changer I think and as is really one of the big differences between the two sports that I've found uh, Rugby Union's willingness to invest in the 
infrastructure and the expertise for coaching and medicine and things like that was much higher than rugby league. So if you go to a rugby union club now, firstly, their training grounds and things like that are generally significantly better in terms of the facilities that, than rugby league. Uh, and um, sort of where rugby league club might have six computers, the rugby union club's got 60. And also in personnel. So if you again, if you turn up at the training ground, there'll probably be 10 coaches working with the first team, whereas in rugby league, there's maybe three. So they invested heavily in in, in people in video analysis. So each team would have a, an analyst um, and they'd also invest in the, the computer gear and the software and such like. So that, that was really a massive difference probably between the years 2000 and 2005. Rugby Union got a leap and they, they were kind of into it a long time before soccer. Uh, and the interesting thing for Rugby Union, almost from the start, there were players much more involved. So not every player, but there'd be kind of the kind of the guy who calls the line outs and such like he would have been into the video analysis right from the start. Whereas in, in rugby league, um, it, it, over time the players did get more involved, but it was probably three or four years after rugby union had, had adopted it. Has that changed over the past few years? I mean, are, are, are the two spots more aligned or is there still that big difference? Um, I would say there still is a difference. I think the, the real limitation for rugby league is, is the manpower to deal with all the information, whether that's the coded video information or the kind of the stats in the spreadsheets. Um, uh, they, ju- they just don't have enough time in the coaching staff to dedicate fully to it, I think. Um, what you do find is quite often the head coaches in rugby league are really quite into the the kind of the nitty gritty of it themselves. So they will sit down and do their own video analysis rather than in the, in sort of bigger rugby union clubs and football clubs. This is all is kind of delegated down to other people. Um, so in, in some ways that can be a good thing for the rugby league coach because he, he perhaps gets a more intimate knowledge of what's going on with all the other teams and things like that. But it's not good for him if, if the kind of overworked and exhausted all the time. Is it the case that when the use of performance analysis, it's led to the to the game changing, either league or union, it's led to the game changing in the way it's played in terms of tactics and strategy? Or is it mainly used as a way of analysing player performance and looking at how players' games can be tweaked? Because normally, I think just for the general layperson outside... It, it often seems that it's all about player stats, you know, who ran the most yards, who made the most busts and stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's there's a little bit uh, of a difference there as well. I think rugby league, certainly from the beginning, was much more concerned about the individual. What I think we found almost immediately is weak tacklers were ruthlessly identified and and really by, net, by sort of within the first three or four years of Super League, They'd kind of gone, and there were very few left that were were poor defenders. And I think rugby union, to a degree, their initial focus was more on how can we win more lineouts and scrums. 
uh, and and they would spend possibly I, I would argue at that time a disproportionate amount of time looking at set pieces compared to their possible value in the game. What type of things were they looking at in scrums then? Well, just just kind of uh, presumably the body position of the players, um, the kind of which which props were stronger and weaker than others. Uh, what what teams were likely to do when they won the scrum in certain positions on the field, that kind of thing. I, I would have argued at the time there was probably more to be gained from the kind of the rugby league approach of identifying what the individuals are good and bad at. But obviously that followed uh, down the line. But what I think probably one of the, the main things that kind of happened as well, and I think certainly in rugby league they were on the way to working this out for themselves, it kind of underlined their views on risk and reward. So what we've what we've found is a game now that probably hasn't really changed much in, in 20 years, really, that they realised that you were most likely to score when you had the ball near the opponent's line. So if you had the ball in your own half, you were probably not very likely to score. And thus, it wasn't a good idea to take massive risks and give the ball to the other team in a position where they were likely to score. And I think both codes of rugby have now adopted this, and particularly in rugby union, where not only if you take risks in your own half could you lose the ball, but you actually there's a reasonable chance you could give a penalty to the other team as well, which is obviously worse than just knocking on or you know having a scrum. So consequently, what you've found really is... is in both codes of rugby teams are very, very conservative in their own half. And the idea of the game is to get up, up the other end and somehow get the ball. Yeah, I think this is one of the interesting things because there's there's an argument, which is not often backed up with any um, analysis or data, that one of the reasons why Great Britain or England uh, have failed successively against Australia for the past, essentially, past 40 years is that they they've adopted the Australian tactics of playing conservatively and have abandoned what people have seen as traditional British, uh, more open style of rugby league. And from what you've just said, the use of stats for for performance analysis um, has actually encouraged those trends. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly there's there's an element that it can become a bit self-fulfilling. So if, if each team becomes more conservative, the chances of scoring from your own half become less and less because teams are not trying to do it. And then that becomes more and more evidence not to do it, if you see what I mean. And uh, I think certainly if we look at, if we look at most rugby league internationals over the last 20 years, a lot of them have been quite low scoring matches. So both teams have kind of employed quite conservative tactics although we could argue that's because international players are better at tackling and the defences are better organised and things like that. To a degree, probably in most sport, the underdog has a better chance in a low-scoring match, which probably goes the same for, you know, even cricket, probably. If if you have a, a not very good batting pitch, it makes it a bit more random and the weaker team probably has a better chance than if if both teams are scoring 500. Is there any reality in the sense that you could use the stats to 
pick a team of players that uh, person for person would be better than the other team, and you could predict how that game would go. Yeah, I think I think that is a really a quite hard thing to do, particularly in rugby union where the roles of different players are, are, are quite different. I think rugby league has perhaps uh, developed to, in a way that the, the thirteen players kind of more or less do very similar jobs to each other now, whereas in rugby union they are still a bit differentiated. So the complexity of the mathematical model to to kind of say, well, this this hooker's good in the scrum, but he's maybe not so good in the line throwing in the line out, but he's good in the loose and this that. And then combining that across all fifteen players to get a perfect combination. That's that's very, very complex maths. One of the beauties of rugby is that you can still have and this is important for all sports, I think, you can still have a game where the best side loses. Because if, if you couldn't, nobody would ever be interested in it. So you can kind of at the end of a game put a measure on well, if these if these teams had played like this ten times, what should the score have been normally? And there'll be there'll be kind of random factors, the wind, the referee, a player making an astonishing mistake or an astonishing piece of genius that that make the score vary. But generally, um, and it's probably the same for sports like American football uh, and probably AFL and things like that. Generally, most often the team that dominates the stats is probably going to win the game, but not always. And and, and football, I think football is a more random game than rugby union and rugby unions a more random game than rugby league, if, if you see what I mean. So that's where football probably has an advantage in that Watford can beat Liverpool 3-0 or whatever it was every now and again, but Liverpool are clearly better than Watford. I suppose the most famous example, well, in world sport anyway, of the use of performance stats, is is the Moneyball story, the Michael Lewis book, and then the subsequent film with uh, Brad Pitt, which explained how the Oakland A's use stats to um, analyse and recruit players and then figure out um, tactics uh, that they can use against different teams. To what extent is performance analysis used in either league or union to recruit players, either from from community clubs or in academies or from other clubs? Is there much use of that to analyse what type of player you want, what qualities and what statistical indicators you want from a player and then clubs go out and get that player? Yeah, I think um, it's it's really important probably to make a distinction between signing players from other professional clubs where the information's all there and the fact that they don't have any information on junior players or kind of players from outside rugby league. So to a degree, I think there there is due diligence done on players from other professional rugby league clubs where they can compare that player to the players that they've currently got. Uh, is it probably as technically as advanced as American football, baseball, basketball? No, nowhere near. But are people doing it? Yes. Obviously, the problem they've got with is junior players is they have very little information to go on. Um, and that probably means a lot of good players could slip the net because the scouting's not uh, as good as it should be 
But football, say for others, football, for example, really have quite heavily got into data for recruitment, scouting. Obviously, they've got a massive pool of players to scout from, so it's it's probably more needed. Whereas in in rugby league, there maybe are only a thousand players in the world to look at who are professional players. Whereas in football, there's perhaps a hundred thousand. So actually, uh, picking up picking up value for money players is um, really interesting. And like clubs like Brentford have been really they've uh, concentrated more on recruiting from other clubs than developing junior players because they can get that information. And, and you would argue that Brentford have been quite successful doing that. And then top Premier League clubs as well uh, have done it. But on the other hand, you would argue that Liverpool and Manchester City are probably two of the more advanced teams in that area. They could just buy the player that they wanted anyway. So it's not it's not like they're in a real, really competitive situation for the same players uh, in the same kind of... Uh, they're not really fishing in the same pond as Brentford, who may be... Um, if they can sign a player for a, a million pounds who's going to be worth... Ten or twenty million pounds in two years' time—that's that's, that's a, a, a kind of a really massive thing. Because this is this is kind of well, in in soccer terms anyway. This is certainly it appears to, from the outside that it appears to be the place where um, computer simulation meets the real world. So you've got games like Football Manager, where you can sit down in your own in front of your own computer and look at the the stats of players from every league around the world. And decide whether you want to buy him for your for your fantasy football team. Is that an accurate view of the way in which games like Football Manager use stats, or is it is it much more simplified, or is it completely different? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think many clubs, football clubs, would sign a player on such a simple ways, looking at the data and and then just buying the player. I think it's it's a combination of tiers of scouting. So so you'd have a kind of the data bringing you a long list then some video analysis of the people on the long list which might make a short list and then the, the scouts would actually go and watch the short list so you you've 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 maybe started off with a thousand a thousand right backs in the world of football you've narrowed that down to 30 who meet your sort of statistical criteria then you've narrowed that down to five by actually watching them play on the video and then and then you choose the well you hope to be able to get the one you want out of the five but there's a reasonable chance that some of the clubs have what come to the conclusion that the same five are <laughs> so that's that's kind of where the, the the statistical model breaks down if everybody has the statistical model the same one because because then you're just back to where you started again with the value of these players going up um, and that's where it's kind of important for rugby and American football and sports like that, where you've got a salary cap to be able to get the best value uh, for money player for the salary that you're paying him or her is really critical. Where it doesn't matter so much in football at the moment, but who knows where football might go given the times we're in. One of the things I wondered, you've, and you've kind of highlighted the point there, is that. At some point, if everybody's using similar methods of analysis, using the same stats, at what point 
does it kind of become a level playing field and we revert back to what happened before and things, recruitment, um, match strategies are based on the coach's hunches? Um, as it can, is there an element in which eventually the use of stats will um, will cancel itself out? Yeah, I mean, I think it, certainly when we were developing the products in the market, there was definitely a little bit of an arms race mentality amongst clubs where once maybe we got to three or four clubs out of 12 in a rugby competition who, who had the perceived advantage or the the other eight, within a few months, the other eight would all become customers because they couldn't afford to not have something that everybody else had. The argument we would have is it's then about how you use the information and um, kind of your skill at interpreting it, um, which then gives you an advantage over the other teams. So as as long as as long as the, the clubs still retain that kind of intellectual property of their own in order of kind of how they're going to manipulate that information, whether it be the data or the video, to reach their own conclusions, then I think you're still going to get that kind of differentiation between the clubs. The danger would be is if they all they all have the same magic formula that tells them who the best player is and they all rely singly on the same formula, which I think is probably unlikely to happen because certainly in football the kind of the bigger clubs are all as well as as well as investing in people to collect the data or or paying outside organizations to buy the data they're actually working on their own ip for kind of formulas and using their own ways of valuing players uh, and such like that. So, whereas kind of in the in the middle and the bottom, financial necessity might mean people have to outsource it. It'll always be driven at the top by clubs who who have got enough money to to do their own thing. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've kind of touched on my last question, which is really what's what's the future for performance analysis? Is yeah, are there are there categories that haven't been investigated for you know, technical technological reasons or just because they haven't been thought about that you think will become more important or do you think that you know we we've reached a plateau in the way that stats can be used? Yeah, so I think the next phase, which probably applies to all sports, is is decision making of players. So it's quite easy in all sports to kind of say what they did. We passed it. Uh, we uh, we tackled somebody. We we ran here, uh, and what now we're getting better player tracking data, which is kind of measuring where the player was on the field at any given time, and some including the ball accurately in that data, so we know where the ball was. Then we can give a context of whether um, whether the player was doing the right thing at the right time. And that, so far, has been pretty difficult to measure. Uh, and it's still, going forward, might be difficult to measure, but at least it's possible. And that, that really is, I think, where where the top clubs are taking the direction of it. So, really, it's kind of, did, did the full-back make a supporting run to join up with the attack? Yes. But was it the right 
time to do it, yes or no. We can all see it in a rugby match where the guy gets the ball, he's got a you know, four-on-two overlap outside him, and he kicks it. And we can see that clearly um, he's made the wrong decision. But that's a very obvious example. There'll be a lot more times where it's, it's a bit more nuanced. And over a season, can we count all these up and say, you know what, this, this guy makes the right decision 93% of the time and the guy we had playing last week was only 57. And I think that's that's the kind of the future as we get better source data that collected by computers and not by humans, we, we, we take that like limitation of the human data and we can apply it. So, uh, and I think probably the decision-making is, is, is more important than the kind of athletic and activity data that we've been working on for 25 years. Well, yeah, I guess so, because decision-making is what separates great players from good players. It's uh, the player who has much more time than anybody else, or appears to have much more time to make those decisions, or who has the football brain, as you'd say. So, in a sense, it's as you say, you've kind of um, done all the athletic indicators, and now it's onto something even more that's apparently intangible, but who knows, with artificial intelligence, maybe... Every rugby player will uh, will become a Wally Lewis or a um, Cameron Smith. Yeah, and again, and touching on two of the things we talked about earlier in the conversation. One, these seemingly random against the odd, odds wins probably can be explained by maybe six or eight correct or wrong decisions at certain points in the match on a given day. So the team that's physically superior may make some wrong decisions and and then they lose. And also in the signing of younger players, if there's some way that you can measure their decision-making ability when they're 15, either you know which which are the really are the, the best players, even if they may not be the biggest players, and you can invest time in in developing them, or... If you've got a great athlete who's 15, you can actually say, well, we need to spend the next five years improving his decision-making and then he might become the player that, you know, he may become the best player in the world instead of a kid who's big and fast. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that note, uh, we've we've run out of time and so I'll end it on what is a p- potentially a very positive and very, uh, very interesting potential for the future. So, um, well, thanks, Rob. It's been great to have you on the show. This is absolutely fascinating. At some point, we'll have to do this again because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we haven't discussed. And certainly also the history of the way sports stats has been used is, is really interesting. So there's lots more to discuss. I hope that listeners have enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. For more information about the topics we've discussed, just check out the show notes for this episode that now appear on my website, www.rugbyreloaded.com which also features a full archive of all previous episodes and you can follow me on Twitter at at Collins Tony. Until next time, keep safe and stay well.